Thanks for downloading this podcast, which is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. This podcast was recorded during our series of late summer lectures in 2020. In this talk, Kathleen Poy from Durham University explains how James Shirley's 1639 tragedy, The Politician, reflected the court and politics of Charles I. I'm approaching Charles' performance of self from a literary perspective. So in my paper, I'll look at how the dramatist James Shirley used his 1639 tragedy, The Politician, to raise questions of proximity and agency. Charles kept his advisers close and at the same time pushed Parliament away throughout the 11 years of his personal rule. William Lord, Thomas Strafford and Queen Henrietta Maria formed the close circle that he polled to him. In this paper, I argue that Shirley's play suggests the King might well be careful how closely he kept Thomas Wentworth, the Earl of Strafford, and how much he gave his ear to the Queen. So thou hast waked a lioness, rousing the box popularly in James Shirley's The Politician. James Shirley was devoted to the court of King Charles I and Queen Henrietta Maria. During Charles I's reign, between the years of 1642, the arts flourished. Spectacular courtly entertainment went hand in hand with a Neoplatonic couple. Charles's French queen, Henrietta Maria, had a particular passion for theatre and the mask form, but this drew negative attention from the anti-theatricalists, notably William Prynne, a Puritan pamphleteer and a member of the Inns of Court. Prynne's 1633 History of Mastics strongly critiqued the court and indeed the Queen herself. His non-too-subtle conflation, women actors, notorious whores, followed a performance of The Shepherd's Paradise in which Queen Henrietta Maria and her ladies-in-waiting had acted. In response to Prince's critique in History of Mastics, Shirley showed his devotion to the court of Charles I and Queen Henrietta Maria in particular with his 1634 mask, The Triumph of Peace. This not only formed a timely riposte from both the Inns of Court and Whitehall quarters, but extended the message of support to a wider audience through a public procession from Holborn to Banqueting House, and a repeat performance in a civic setting at Merchant Taylor's Hall, which was attended by Charles and Henrietta Maria. Kevin Sharp, in criticism and compliments the politics of literature in the England of Charles I notes the mask's cost. A staggering 21,000 pounds offered by the Inns of Court to atone for the sins of one of their number. In this 1639 play, Shirley presents at first sight a foolish king giving two full credence to a corruptive counselor and a hellcat queen which might, at first sight, cast an unflattering light on Charles's personal rule and relationship with his wife. However, on closer inspection, we see that the play serves not as a direct affront, rather it explores the ways in which adjacency to the court and its relative concession of agency should be better used to serve the Crown and Commonwealth's interests. So the play, The Politician, it charts the failure of a plot between the play's eponymous politician, 
the ambitious councillor Gatharis and Queen Marpisa, a proud, subtle and revengeful lady. And they try to manipulate the easy and credulous King of Norway. They scheme to oust the soldier prince Turgesius as heir to the throne and place Marpisa's son there instead. They're thwarted. Both the corrupt politician and the queen die by poison. And at the play's close, the king regains the, the spear on his rule and his son, Prince Turgesius, has a hope to court Gatharis's virtuous but suffering widow, Albina. Following examines female characterization of Queen Marpisa. And for the purposes of today's paper, I devote my attention to Marpisa's interactions with the king and Gatharis, the politician. From her first mention, Queen Marpisa, her relationship to the king dominates her characterization. She is the subject of the play's first line, a gallery in the palace. Cortes and Hormonus, two honest courtiers, observe, Cortes, it was a strange and sudden marriage. Hormonus, could he not love her for the game and so forth, but he must thus exalt her, no less title than queen to satisfy her ambition. Cortes, is a brave rise. She's a character who was married above her station. Hormonus' later observation that the prince and his great uncle, Duke Olius, would not allow these pranks of state, nor see the king betrayed to a concubine, reveals the disruption to the status quo at the court that this strange and sudden marriage represents. Marpisa is first directly addressed not by the king, but by the king's uncle, with the exclamatory introduction, the Queen. So the audience has waited 350 lines for her entrance. Her announcement through her title emphasizes that this status is the defining feature of her identity. For Gatharis, a corrupt politician, her status is the culmination of his collaborative machinations. For the audience, the announcement serves as the revelation of the subject of much of the stage traffic thus far. The fact that she enters as queen in name, but in act as co-conspirator with a Machiavellian malcontent Gatharis, foregrounds this as Shirley's primary concern in her characterization. So Shirley delays her utterance. By this point, she's received mention by all of the characters that have appeared so far, but significantly not by the king. Olius's exclamation jolts Gatharis from plotting. Plotting, I must new form the boy into more vice and daring. Strange, we must study at court how to corrupt our children. He references either his believed paternity of Heraldus or a wider commentary on the Caroline court. Shirley's wider political comment on court corruption is laced with weighted ambiguity. Shirley's audience would have been attuned to critique of the most notorious favourite of the early Stuart period, the Duke of Buckingham, aware of his failed impeachment in Parliament regarding the death of James I. The audience could have been expected to remember his later assassination at the hands of a soldier. James R. Keller notes that on Buckingham's death, all over London, church bells chimed, bonfires were lit and people drank to the Duke's fall. The popular and open nature of the celebration revealed the depth of dislike for him. So Marpisa opens the dialogue with Gatharis and she places them very much on the level. 
Shirley forms our impression of the nuances of their interdependent relationship, almost sort of symbiotic parasites. Gatharis is reassuring, stating we'll be secure, and that's met with her, albeit feigned, submissive, thou art my fate. Shirley acknowledges the necessity of Marquise's gender in their machinations, through the use of the contemporary misogynistic, now you have most need of woman's art, dissemble cunningly. And here we see the potential bawdy undercurrent echoing Hamlet's reference to country matters. It serves to lend a vulgarity that shapes our perception of Gatharis. Additionally, Marpeza's unflinching my best Gatharis, following hard on the heels of his instruction, further emphasises their collusion and our impression of their distasteful symbiosis. There's a strong contrast in Marpeza's relationship with Gatharis and that with the king. In Act 2, we see Marpeza's private exchange with the king. Here, her speech dominates his by 33 lines to 18. Shirley weighs her agency. Contemporary anxieties concerning Henrietta Maria's influence abounded. However, as Eric Aviva's notes, Puritan fears and Catholic expectations probably ran with what Henrietta was actually able to accomplish, since it appears that she did not have much power to change Charles's mind once it was made up. Marpisa must steer the king away from familial loyalty to the prince and Olius. The king attempts to reassure her. Is not fair Marpisa mine by marriage? Twelve lines later, her self-nomination in the third person, her fear that Olius will salute Marpisa with his scorn. It echoes the king's attempted reassurance and then goes on to undo it and pleads, oh, think upon me. Shirley's careful use of personal pronouns, transitioning from the objective Marpisa to the subjective me, shows her steering the king's affections. She is at once wounded widow, protecting mother, unequal suitor, and very much the queen. Subtle, indeed. Her public-facing speech with the king differs from her verbal dominance in private. By Act 5, the king bemoans his folly being drawn in by Marpisa. Oh, I am lost and my soul bleeds to think by my own dotage on thee. He acknowledges his foolish desire for Marpisa and that it has blinded him to other ills. He rues the impious woman and the sorcery of her tongue and eyes. Marpisa evenly reflects this bitterness back at him, mocking the poor wind-shaken king. She picks up his ocular reference, wishing she had been a basilisk to, sh to have shot a death to his dissembling heart. Furthering the serpent image, she invokes the fall through the accusatory use of temptation and flattery. In turn, the king instructs Marpisa to get to some wilderness, people with serpents, and engender with some dragon like thyself. He takes up the image and shifts the blame back to her. Shirley's cross-pollination of their speech reflects the anger of a relationship that has gone into the red. Her subsequent laughter underscores this. When the king dubs her shame of woman, her rebuff is to mock him further, calling him doted and assuring him, I will be merry at thy last groan, before twisting the knife further, thou murderer of thy son. When the news comes of a hostile army drawing near, she laughs at the king's ineptitude. When she states, I would kill thee, coward, his response is to cry, treason, treason. 
She then mocks I, I, who comes to your rescue and almost realises his lack of recognition, are all fled. The king's final reflection, undone, forsaken, and miserable king, is underscored by the visual echo of the king and queen's division in the stage direction, exeunt severally, so going off to the separate sides of the stage. In the final scene, the king speaks only two lines to Marpisa. Shirley reveals the king's confusion, confusion, what has wrought. It is clear that Marpisa has outwitted the king by being the cause of Gatharis's death, and she is empoisoned and already dying. He asks her, the king asks her, hast thou no thought of heaven? Her reply is light, and rather like Lady Macbeth's lack of dessert for the comforts of old age, she matter-of-factly reflects, lust and ambition ruined me. Her final line is not to the king, perhaps, but to the wider audience, as she voices the Christian message, forgive, forgive, echoing Christ's father, forgive them, they know not what they do. So by Act 5, the collusion between Marpisa and Catharus is severed. The scene closes with her vow to move resolute to command his destiny. The fact that the following scene opens in the private domestic space of a room in Gatharis's house foreshadows the personal impact that Marpisa is to have. We are reminded at the opening of the scene of Gatharis's conspiracy with Hormonus, which has cost Marpisa's son Heraldus his life and ignited Marpisa's vengeance. As Hormonus bemoans the cursed plot and giddy engines, Gatharis remains silent. Gatharis addresses Marpisa in Act 4 as Great Queen. In offering her the comfort of the bliss of the other world, Shirley emphasises his emollients. In turn, he gives emphasis to Marpisa's greater manipulative skill. She neither wails nor accuses, rather she seemingly continues to tread forward in collusion with Gatharis. She takes the pragmatic line. Tears will not call him back and reaffirms their bond. We too are the world unto ourselves, embracing the parasite with the circle of our arms. It's worthy of note here that Adrian Street considers that in the theatre it's the attractive combination of rhetorical persuasion and physical gesture that is so dangerous. Marpisa here deploys both with full and cogent effect. Once she has assured him of her loyalty, she is silent. When Gathara seeks confirmation, she's monosyllabic. When he seeks to draw her into further discourse through praise of her harmonious voice, she is silent. Shirley shares her thoughts with the audience rather than with her conspirator in an aside. She is working on him and Shirley is showing us the strings. So Marpisa goes on to give her ex-lover a box of poison, naming it cordial to aid his recovery. The materiality of the box echoes and, with Shirley in dark humour, complements the later presence of the coffin on stage. Here we see the interesting contemporary cultural connection between cosmetics and poison. A woman's cosmetic box would contain the toxic paint of her self-artifice. Farrah Karen Cooper, writing on Middleton's The Revenger's Tragedy and The Second Maiden's Tragedy, observes the popular links made between poisonous ingredients, moral corruption, and the female body. Marpisa's statement that she dare not walk without this ivory box underscores the necessity of duplicity involved in the assertion of female agency. 
Smilingly, she reassures Gatharis, I'm often subject to these passions and dare not walk without this ivory box to prevent danger. As Gatharis seeks to show gratitude, she directs him from hand to lip. Marpisa is st effectively stage-managed here, defying suspicion, empoisoning Gatharis and revenging her son. This achieved, she flees, saying the common people are in arms. And this is perhaps proleptic of the rising tide against Charles and of Henrietta's return to France for her own safety. As Henrietta would herself write in a letter to Charles on the 16th of April, 1642, you know the affection of people changes like the wind, therefore make good use of it while it lasts. Queen Marpisa is keenly aware of their attitude towards her. Alas, they'll kill me too. Shirley uses Marpisa's manipulation of Gatharis to reveal the Queen as the driving force and the corrupt politician Gatharis as inept. Both are endangered by the Vox Populi. Kevin Sharp notes the tension that had existed between Buckingham and Henrietta Maria, observing that the death of the Villiers was a precondition for the blossoming of love between Charles and Henrietta Maria. Though Shirley's audience would have been attuned to the echoes of the Duke of Buckingham and also similar, more timely concerns about the Earl of Strafford, whose brisk and forceful methods increasingly alienated him from the people. Indeed, at the time of writing, Shirley was himself with the Earl in Ireland and he perhaps shared those same concerns. James Arkeller states the playwright had reason to despise the Earl of Strafford because of the latter's despotic rule in Ireland and discrimination against Catholics. Van Dyke's later 1640 portrait of Strafford here, closely attended by his dutiful Secretary of State in Ireland, Sir Philip Mannering, it depicts a stern figure indeed. Arthur K. Wheelock Jr. notes the forceful stare of a man whose powerful personality and steadfast convictions raised him by the end of the 1630s to a position of importance second only to the king. Shirley's delineation of the grasping Gatharis nudges us towards a critique of Strafford. The proud Marpisa serves also to suggest that the king might do well to keep those closest to him at arm's length and begin to listen more attentively to the voices of Parliament. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Now let us hear from you. Search for Read Research English at Durham on social media and discuss the latest research news, events and literary insights with our community of readers, thinkers and writers.